Chapter One of Laramie Holds the Range. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One of Laramie Holds the Range by Frank Spearman. Chapter One Sleepy Cat. Recording by Bob Rollins in Augusta, Georgia. All day the heavy train of sleepers had been climbing the long rise from the river, a monotonous stretch of treeless, short-grass plains reaching from the Missouri to the mountains. And now the train stopped again, almost noiselessly. Kate, with the impatience of girlish spirits tried by a long and tedious car journey, left her Pullman window and its continuous one-tone picture and, walking forward, was glad to find the vestibule open. The porter, meditating alone, stood below at the car step, looking ahead. Kate joined him. The stop had been made at a lonely tank for water. No human habitation was anywhere in sight. The sun had set. For miles in every direction, the seemingly level and open country spread around her. She looked back to the darkening east that she was leaving behind. It suggested nothing of interest beyond the vanishing perspective of a long track tangent. Then to the north, whence blew a cool and gentle wind, but the landscape offered nothing attractive to her eyes. Its receding horizon told no new story. Then she looked to the west, they had told her she should not see the Rockies until morning, but the dying light in the west brought a moving surprise. In the dreamy afterglow of the evening sky there rose, far beyond the dusky plain, the faint but certain outline of distant mountain peaks. Bathed in a soft unearthly light like the purple of another world, touched here and there by a fairy gold, silent as dreams majestic as visions overwhelming as reality itself kate gazed on them with a beating heart something clutched at her breath are those the rocky mountains she suddenly asked appealing to the stolid porter she told bell long afterward she knew her voice must have quivered aim sure I couldn't say miss i specs they are this my first trip out here. So it is mine. My regular run, continued the porter, insensible to the glories of the distant sky, is from Chicago to Council Bluffs. A flagman hurried past. Kate courageously pointed. Are those the Rocky Mountains, please? He halted only to look at her in astonishment. Yes, am But she was bound he should not escape. How far are they? She shot after him. He looked back, startled. About a hundred miles, he snapped. Plainly, there was no enthusiasm among the train crew over mountains. When she was forced, reluctant, back into the sleeper, she announced joyfully to her birth neighbors that the Rocky Mountains were in sight. One regarded her stupidly, another coldly. Across the aisle, the old lady playing solitaire did not even look up. Kate subsided. 
but dull apathy could not rob her of that first wonderful vision of the strange far-off region perhaps to be her home next day from the car window it was all mountains at least everywhere on the horizon but the train seemed to thread an illimitable desert a poor exchange for the boundless plains kate thought but she grew to love the very dust of the desert the train was due at sleepy cat in the late afternoon it met with delays and night had fallen when kate after giving the porter too much money left her car and suitcase in hand struggled american fashion up the long dark platform toward the dimly lighted station men and women hastened here and there about her the changing crews moved briskly to and from the train there was abundance of activity but none of it concerned kate and her comfort and there was no one she feared to meet her reaching the station she set down her suitcase without a tremor and though she had never been more alone she never felt less lonely the eating-house gong beat violently for supper a woman dragging a little boy almost fell over kate's suitcase but did not pause to receive or tender apology men looking almost solemn under broad straight-brimmed hats moved in and out of the station but none of these saw kate only one man striding past looked at her he glared and as he had but one eye kate deemed him from his expression a woman-hater then a fat man under an immense hat and wearing a very large ring on one hand walked with a dapper step out of the telegraph office he did see kate he checked his pace, coughed slightly, and changed his course, as if to hold himself open to inquiry. Kate, without hesitation, turned to him and explained she was for Doubleday's ranch. She asked whether he knew the men from there and whether anyone was down. John Lefevre, for it was he whom she addressed, knew the men, but he had seen no one. Could he do anything? i want very much to get out there to-night said kate jingo exclaimed lefevre not to-night to-night returned kate looking out of dark eyes and pink and white appeal if i can possibly make it lefevre caught her suitcase and set it down beside the waiting-room door stay right here a minute he said he walked toward the baggage-room and before he reached it stopped a second large heavy man henry saudy him he held in confab saudy looking meantime quite unabashed toward the distant kate in the light streaming from the station windows her slender and slightly shrinking figure suggested young womanhood and her delicately fashioned features half hidden under her hat pleasingly confirmed his impression of it kate conscious of inspection could only pretend not to see him and the sole impression she could snatch in the light and shadow of the redoubtable saudi was narrowed to a pair of sweeping moustaches and a stern-looking hat lefevre returned his companion sauntering along after kate explained that she had telegraphed 
At that moment, an odd-looking man with a rapid rolling right and left gait ambled by and caught Kate's eye. Instead of the formidable Stetson hat mostly in evidence, this man wore a baseball cap, of the sort usually given away with popular brands of flour, its peak cocked to its own apparent surprise over one ear. The man had sharp eyes and a long nose for news, and proved it by halting within earshot of the conversation carried on between Kate and the two men. He looked so queer, Kate wanted to laugh, but she was too far from home to dare. He presently put his head conveniently in between Saudi and Lefevre, and offered some news of his own. "'There's been a big electric storm in the upcountry, Saudi. The telephones are on the bum.' "'How's she going to get to Doubleday tonight, McAlpin?' asked Saudi abruptly of the newcomer. McAlpin, never under any pressure, answered a question directly. Hence everything had to be explained to him all over again, he looking meantime more or less furtively at Kate. But he found out, despite his seeming stupidity, a lot that he would have taken the big men hours to learn. "'If you don't want to take a rig and driver,' announced McAlpin, after all had been canvassed, "'there's the stage for the fort. They had to wait for the mail. Bill Bradley's on tonight.' I'm thinking he'll set he over from the ford. It's only a matter of two or three miles. Are there any other passengers? asked Kate doubtfully. Bell Shockley for the reservation, answered McAlpin promptly. If she ain't changed her mind, it being so late. Saudi put a brusque end to this uncertainty. She's down there at the mountain house waiting. Seen her myself not ten minutes ago. Scurrying away, McAlpin came back in a jiffy with the driver, Bradley. Thin, bent, and grizzled though he was, Kate thought she saw under the broad but shabby hat, and behind the curtain of scraggly beard and deep wrinkles, dependable eyes, and felt reassured. "'How far is it to the ranch?' she asked of the queer-looking Bradley. "'Long ways away you go, ain't it, Bill?' McAlpin turned to the old driver for confirmation. "'About fourteen mile,' answered Bradley, "'to the ford.' "'What time should I get there?' asked Kate again. Bradley stood pat. "'What time should get there, Bill?' demanded Lefevre. Twelve o'clock,' hazarded Bradley tersely. "'Or,' he added, "'I'll stop when I pass the ranch "'and tell him to send a rig down in the morning.' That would take you out of your way, Kate objected. Not a great ways. A man that would go to this trouble in the middle of the night for someone he had never seen before, Kate deemed safe to trust. No, she said. I'll go with you if I may. The way in which she spoke, the sweetness and simplicity of her words, moved Saudi and Lefevre, the first a widower and the second a bachelor, and even stirred McAlpin, a married man. But they had no particular effect on Bradley. The blandishments of young womanhood were past his time of day. With Lefevre carrying the suitcase and nearly everybody talking at once, the party walked around to the rear door of the baggage room. The stage had been backed up, a hostler in the driver's seat, and the mail and express were being loaded. 
Saudi volunteered to save time by fetching Bell Shockley from the hotel, and while McAlpin and Lefevre inspected and discussed the horses, for the condition of which McAlpin, as foreman of Kitchen's Barn, was responsible, Kate stood listener and onlooker. Everything was new and interesting. Four horses champed impatiently under the arc light swinging in the street, and looked quite fit. But the stage itself was a shock to her idea of a western stage. Instead of the old-fashioned swinging coach body, such as she had wondered at in circus spectacles, she saw a very substantial, shabby-looking Democrat wagon with a top and with side curtains. The curtains were rolled up. But the oddest thing to Kate was that wherever a particle could lodge, the whole stage was covered with a ghostly, grayish-white dust. While the loading went on, Saudi arrived with the second passenger, Belle Shockley. She had, fortunately for Kate's apprehensions, not changed her mind. Belle herself was something of an added shock. She wore a long rubber coat in which the rubber was not in the least disguised. Her hair was frizzed about her face, and a small brimless hat perched high, almost startled, on her head. She was tall and angular, her features were large, and her eyes questioning. Had she had Bradley's beard, she would have passed with Kate for the stage driver. She was formidable, but yet a woman, and she scrutinized the slender whip of a girl before her with feminine suspicion. Nor did she give Kate a chance to break the ice of acquaintance before starting. Under Lefevre's chaperonage, and with his gallant help, Kate took her seat where directed, just behind the driver, and her new companion presently got up beside her. The mailbags disposed of, Bradley climbed into place, gathered his lines, the hostler let go the leads, and the stage was off. The horses, restive after their long wait, dashed down the main street of the town, whirling Kate, all eyes and ears, past the glaring saloons and darkened stores, to the extreme west end of Sleepy Cat. There, striking northward, the stage headed smartly for the divide. The night was clear with the stars burning in the sky. From the rigid silence of the driver and his two passengers, it might have been thought that no one of them ever spoke. To Kate, who, as an eastern girl, had never, it might be said, breathed pure air, the clear, high atmosphere of the mountain night was like sparkling wine. Her senses tingled with the strange stimulant. To Belle there was no novelty in any of this, and the strain of silence was correspondingly greater. It was she who gave in first. "'You from Medicine Bend?' she asked as the four horses walked up the long hill. "'Pittsburgh,' answered Kate. "'Pittsburgh! Pittsburgh!' echoed Belle, startled. "'Gee, some trip you've had!' Bell, encouraged, then confessed that a cyclone had given her her own first start west. She had been blown two blocks in one and had all of her hair pulled out of her head. They said I'd have had no chance to get married without any hair, she continued, so I got a wig. Never could find my own hair. 
and come west for a chance and they're here if you're looking for a husband you've come to the right place i haven't the least idea of getting married protested kate they'll be after you declared bell sententiously are you married ventured kate not yet but they're coming i'm in no hurry she talked freely about her own affairs she had worked for doubleday for whose ranch kate was bound doubleday had had a chain of eating-houses on the line as bell termed the transcontinental railroad they had all been taken over except the one where she worked at sleepy cat junction and this would be taken soon bell thought that's a trouble with barb doubleday she went on he's got too many irons in the fire head over heels in debt there's no money nowadays in cattle anyway what are you going up to doubleday's for he's my father your father well i never open my mouth without i put my foot in it anyway i've never seen him continued kate bell was all interest she confided to kate that she was now on her way for a visit to the reservation where her cousin was teaching in an indian school and divided her time for the next hour between getting all she could of kate's story and telling all of her own on kate's part there was no end of questions to ask about country and customs and people when bell could not answer she appealed to bradley who if taciturn was at least patient every time the conversation lulled and kate looked out into the night it seemed as if they were drawing closer and closer to the stars the dark desert still spreading in every direction and the black mountain ridges continually receding end of chapter one